the idea of a realm of unbelief is an illusion, similar to the others mentioned. Finally, the idea that techniques can operate without extension to purposes, purpose, purpose, means that we cannot properly evaluate the moral effectiveness of things and dangers of the living that form part of the conceived behavior of the the title also uses the word publicist, but it's just to me an interesting explanation of the experience of it, but it's the authority of the in the hope that a new approach to civic intercept for Australian citizenship and Australian culture itself. Finally, as for author's conclusion and some recommendations based on what is done before. So that's the frame of the lecture this evening. Part one. Crisis of Western culture. Nothing particularly new to refer to Western culture as being in crisis. This is adopted and referred to the crisis of Western education in this 1961 book of the same title. And I'm sure that with a bit of diligent digging, earlier examples of the crisis drama could be readily included. What is interesting at the moment, however, is that with Horowitz, for example, in a recent book published by Oxford University Press, what he has not pursued, writes as follows. We are now in the twilight of the liberal consensus as we have known it. It may survive with important revisions, or it may collapse altogether, and the new prophets will arise to predict what will come afterwards. One thing, however, seems certain. The liberal consensus that emerged after the Enlightenment Delved in the 19th century and reached a more or less stable form in the 20th century cannot last much longer as a basic and questioned assumption about the way we live. From within and beyond its borders, the liberal consensus is under attack. On all sides, we are hearing calls, sometimes measured and sometimes cruel, for a revision or an outright rejection of the terms of the liberal thinking. Ronald Reed and John Bonhoeffer, in a collection of essays examining civil religion, speak of a crisis of citizenship that is the result of the failure of secular society to satisfy fully its citizens' desires for meaningful community. Consequent upon the failure to integrate fully the human personality into its female citizenship, this in turn, the author's note, produces a crisis of political unity. A recent book by John Milbank and Adrian Pack called The Politics of Virtue, Post-Liberalism and the Human Future, was published in 2016, addresses what it terms meta-crises in relation to politics, economy, policy, culture, and the world itself. With respect to the meta-crisis of liberalism, the authors take a similar path to that of Horowitz I just referred to when they state the whole liberal tradition faces a new kind of crisis because liberalism as a philosophy and an ideology turns out to be contradictory, self-defeating, and parasitic on the legacy of Greco-Roman civilization and the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, which it distorts and follows out. The authors state that the only genuine alternative is a post-liberal politics of virtue that seeks to choose greater economic justice with social reciprocity. Australian Clive Hamilton 
a burden of the disappointment of liberalism and highlights significant risks of the maladies of happiness as a person that suggests that the psychological well-being of citizens in rich countries is in fact in decline. What all these factors suggest is essential to the recovery or creation of a richer moral and aesthetic framework for life in contemporary society. They all speak of greatness. And of the traditions that make the separation. They do not speak of value and with good reason. Reason for those to buy this Language is always open to alternative forms of interpretation, and law is in the business of interpretation. What informs legal interpretation, however, are background notions, notions such as what we mean by secular state, what we mean by secularism. And what we mean by a state being neutral. Furthermore, is there a liberal consensus? What would such a thing as a liberal consensus be? What do we mean by value? And what are these in comparison to virtue? To take two of these terms important to the question, a wide variety of contemporary studies have come to the conclusion that the liberal consensus, which for a time guided certain conceptions of law, has not broken down, and that values of law. However, or how it relates to law, or how law to the state that we can be interested in involving rights. And I think it's key to these questions in your concentrated work. The meaning of social terms such as equality and non-discrimination needs to be viewed through the associational lens, or through the different conditions of sexual orientation are to be reached. And their own viewpoints are one and the same with the singular public agenda. Secularism is not a sanctuary neutral, and when viewed historically, was clearly a movement from its mid 19th century inception to drive religion out of the public sphere so as to both marginalize and privatize it against the idea of an inclusive public sphere. It's known as Secondly, the 
Thank you. 
Thank you. 
that respects jurisdictional difference, but allows for useful cooperative endeavors in education or in healthcare between religion and the state. So the work of, uh, in is I want to point out three examples now of where religious thinkers have understood the limitation of religion. The first Jewish perspective, Rabbi and philosopher David Novak of the University of Toronto has written powerfully um, about the resources within Judaism to re-understand rights within the idea of covenant and the importance of associational rights to the common good. In the past year, I've been privileged to speak on several occasions to the New South Wales Humanist Association and to its legislative forum. On these occasions, I've been reminded powerfully of the common ground frame between humanists and religious believers on such matters as the idea of the human family and the dignity of the person. While there are obviously differences uh, in the derivation of the concepts that we might share, the fact of the commonality of respect is a very important statement in the conversations that are necessary about shared virtues and the common good as well as what forms of civic order are more just than others. That we
point of line is society and the place that is more sacred, moral, and ethical language when they just find the language, including the recognition of civic virtue. Two, be more specific about concepts all within the already recognized multicultural tradition and give more clarity about what a better society looks like. Recognizing the greatest crisis is chapter part one of the chapter. For example, seek the belief within multicultural traditions that support important ideals such as generosity, compassion, mercy, love, and forgiveness. Rather than shy away from the recognition of rich and moral language in diversity, use such terms as the important dignity of the human person, the importance of the family, the importance of the human family, civic friendship, and the common good. Civic friendship alone is a rich relation going back to the human family. Refer to such documents as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, and the International Covenant of Civil and Political, 1966, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural, 1966, and other rights related to political agreements, including the So that everyone else can hear you can was and remains rather controversial. People have said in Canada about that policy what has been said in France about it, namely that multiculturalism doesn't exist or it didn't work. My take on that is that what existed was a kind of pared-down conception of multiculturalism. It wasn't a real attempt to get at what is shared as much as what is diff was different. And that was, it, it, 
bent, as it were, by the same kind of metaphobia, the fear of metaphysics, the fear of moral language and engagement that we see at the core of what I've been describing generally tonight. So I think multiculturalism hasn't really been tried and found wanting in many ways. It was not properly tried. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. I have two quick questions. You talked early on that the, you said that the, the state should have a very open mind towards marriage. Does that mean an open mind towards traditional marriage, gay marriage, and uh, uh, multi-partner marriage? That's the first question. And the second question is you talked a hell of a lot about rights. Everybody's got rights, but nobody's got any responsibilities. Could you enlarge on that, please? Yeah. Well, of course, well, let me ask, answer the second one first because it's the easier one to answer. Um, a right is defined as something that uh, creates a duty. So rights and duties are related. A license or a liberty doesn't create a duty. Okay? So to talk about rights without responsibilities means you don't understand rights. Your first question about marriage is a difficult one because there's so many different things going on with the claims for marriage extension. Those people who want to have um, same-sex marriages, for example, now in Australia, as we saw years ago in Canada and as we've seen in the United States, they, didn't, they tend to only want certain kinds of marital extensions. In other words, they don't want polygamy. They don't want polyamorous marriages. They don't want bisexual marriages. I mean, if you think of sexual orientation as including a set of different types, even in the name LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, which, by the way, in Canada was put into statutory form as, in, as follows. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, two-spirit, religious, queer, and questioning. Okay. That's the Canadian legislative category, which means that if questioning is included, it, 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 what isn't? Right? Now, is where do you draw the line and on what basis? Because the claim that sexual orientation gives the right to exercise it in marriage, why would you stop with just two people? I was counsel on some of the same-sex marriage cases, just so I can get my colors clear here, on behalf of interfaith coalitions. And always said that if you move beyond the maleness and femaleness of marriage, why on earth would you stop with the members aspect? Why would you stop with two? And sure enough, there was a case for multiple marriage in Canada emerging out of a certain uh, fundamentalist or unusual mourning group out of British Columbia, a place called Bountiful, ironically. But um, they, that claim was resisted by a judge on the basis that uh, polygamous marriage, it, in fact, breached equality because women in polygamous marriages weren't accorded the same kind of rights as women in ordinary marriages. So the, this showed, I think, what I call any port in a storm jurisprudence, which is that you, the judges are wont to pull in a principle that suits them to get to an end that they may want, but it's not driven by any wider logic about the nature of marriage, which from time immemorial has been male and female because they alone produce children. The idea what's come in with same-sex marriage claims is fascinating. It's also brought in a whole set of claims about um, that necessarily extend procreation beyond two people. Because two men can't produce a child without the assistance of the female. You know the biology. 
so, the, so what's happened is that the natural dimension of marriage has been, in a sense, excluded by the claim of right for equal marriage treatment. This is one of the refreshing things about the Australian context. You do not have the same ready recourse to judicial social activism that we see regularly in Canada or in the United States. In Canada, you didn't need to have a civic discussion about marriage equality because once you got it into the courts, you could just... seem simplistic, but it's uh, something that I, somehow we need to get into the community, the problems that we face. In my view, progressivism has become the dominant religion of the 21st century. The core belief is that government is the equivalent of God. Government has the capacity not only to recognise, but also to solve all the problems of humankind. The resultant faith in the power of government, which is pervasive, has undermined people's recognition of the need for our traditional social institutions because it absolves people from their responsibility for their own lives and to be considerate of others and to care for the needs of others. In propagating these beliefs, the schools have become the equivalent of churches, the universities equivalent of cathedrals, and many extraordinarily intelligent and inspiring people such as Richard Dawkins, Naomi Klein, Barry Jones and Philip Adams the equivalent of a bottle. There appears to be no recognition, and this is important, it seems to me, of the inherent systematic defects in political processes, notably, for example, rent-seeking, vote-buying, and the problem of rational ignorance, the, that being that uh, the only direct control 
of the, of the individual over government is a single vote once every three years for a whole package of things which it's a waste of time thinking about and they don't. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like your views on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, without being flippant about it, I agree with you. I agree with you, and I think you will actually find some very interesting uh, support for your concerns and beautifully wrapped up in this book I referred to in my talk by John, John Milbank and Adrian Papps called The Politics of Virtue, Post-Liberalism and the Human Future, published by Roman and Littlefield last year. I think, and I have no financial interest in the book, sadly to say, because I think it's going to be a massive bestseller. It's a very important book. It, it, it discusses the kind of thing you're talking about. Because the kind of politics we have now in the West is really quite obscene. It's oligarchic, for a start. We don't really have, in my view, um, a system that's responsive to uh, fairness in terms of uh, all kinds of measures of, of uh, equality, fairness, access. We have this, uh, the Trump-Clinton debacle, as far as I'm concerned, should have made us all aware that politics has massively gone off the rails. Um, who, no matter what side of that obscene thing you supported, it was obscene. Uh, Professor Benson, um, since the equivalent of 18C has been deemed unconstitutional in Canada, how, how is it that the roadblocks which exist in Australia now to prevent the repeal of 18C have been overcome in Canada? And why cannot they be overcome in a similar way in Australia? Yeah. Um, the answer to that is really the difference that I was hinting at about you not having a bill of a full bill of rights in 18C. The equivalent language, four fifths of 18C, not all of 18C, was studied in the Watcott decision of the Canadian Supreme Court. Um, that was done by judges. Your failure to have the Turnbull Amendment, which would focus on harassment, right? I think that was the term they were going to use. That failed for political reasons. They didn't have the mandate because they had too thin a majority. So that was a political failure, not um, a judicial analysis question. Um, the first question, what should be the limits of the state? I think it's a very important question. In the same way that law has a jurisdiction, politics has a jurisdiction. Um, and it's important that there, there are matters that are really prior to politics. Liberty, for example, is not the, shouldn't be controlled by politics. Nor should the family, nor should um, basic conditions that are not granted by law. Those things are not the subject matter of law or of politics. They're prior to it. To the state. It's very important because we're in a period of time that the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben refers to as living under what he calls the hypertrophy of law, and it would also apply to the state. 
Hyperfocal conditions are those conditions in biology where something grows beyond its proper form. Starts to mutate. I think tumor is hyperfocal. So uh, we have a situation now where people are looking to the state to compensate for failures in associational life, or the state has expanded beyond its proper role to take over aspects of civil society that really should be free of state control. So we have an overly regulated set of cultures. That tends to be the problem that arises. Does that answer your question? Um, well, I see the role of the state as, a, as kind of a profit cut to, 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 in a sense, regulate as necessary between the different dimensions of culture, but not to usurp the proper functioning of other aspects. So I think what's happened is that the, the importance of civic association, which is very, very important, and religions are key here. I mean, we're suffering now from a, a real problem, which is that the things that have formed the whole Western tradition, namely the active, vibrant religious life, has now been essentially, in many ways, swallowed up. If you go into many churches, you see that they, they haven't reached the young the way they would like to have. So there's a real problem of continuity and transmission. And this is very, very serious for culture because the backbone of Western cultures were the insights derived from the religious. Thank you for your wonderful lecture. Um, my question is um, how can uh, the Catholic Church apply, um, I guess, a different definition of virtue in its own? Kind of society, so in its institutions and schools and its parishes and its agencies and its social work, um, when um, there are not enough people who would ascribe to these virtues to fulfil um, these functions, or at least it seems in the in the practicalities of the HR recruitment process, there aren't enough people who ascribe to these virtues, um, which traditionally have um, charity, previous justice for the temple. Um, uh, for example, we have a uh, organisation I work in. We have a, a, a sort of a team mission, and the first thing it says is we ascribe to Christian values, yeah. um, which, as you said in your lecture, is it's so vague that it, it means no one can really disagree with that, and and also no one can really agree with it. So I'm just, it's all right if you don't have any full, full answer to that question, but that's all I'd like to ask. Yeah, well, first of all, I would agree with your observation that the Catholic Church has been deeply um, compromised by its acceptance of values frameworks. This is such a problem within that tradition, and it's worth mentioning it because that was the tradition that, in a sense, still has in its catechism the virtues as the frame. So, four cardinal virtues, three theological virtues. They're very important within the Catholic faith. Fortunately, the Catechism doesn't spend a lot of time discussing values, but unfortunately, Catholics do, particularly Catholic educators. Um, you know, when I searched amongst older Catholic philosophers for reasons as to why this happened, they were various. One was the general influence of a culture which, as the graph showed, had been swallowed by values language for a long time. That's part of it. Submersion in the general lexical um, inundation. That's the first thing. 
The second is another problem. Why does John, St. John Paul II use it in encyclicals when he really shouldn't have? And I say shouldn't have because when you translate his writing back into Latin, you can't because there's no values in Latin. So it goes back in the Catholic. It's one of the great jokes of time is that the Catholic um, Latin version contains the term 